Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and we're going to build an entire campaign for you to run for your group, starting tonight if you want. As our regular listeners know, we're using the Deadlands Classic system for our game, so if you don't have it, you need to get out and pick up a copy today. Okay, so before we get into building more campaign, I wanted to take a quick second to apologize for not getting a new episode of this show out last week. That is not something I do. I just don't. Even when my wife was undergoing cancer treatments, I managed to get new episodes of Role Playing History out. So to miss an episode not only embarrasses me, quite frankly, it ticks me off. So moving forward, I'm going to do my darndest to make sure we get new episodes every week, no matter how short they may need to have to be to make that happen. All right, so mea culpa handled, and I've done my penance for the transgression. So let's get into campaign building, shall we? As we usually do, let's recap what we created last episode before we drop into the new stuff. Last time out, our group picked up right where we'd left off the previous week with our group still talking to Tobias Allen, who's the right-hand man of Francis Colson. Allen had given the group the key to Colson's safe deposit box as well as provided them with the location of Colson's money. Heading to the First National Bank to check out the safe deposit box, the group had to jump through a few hoops before they got access. Once they did, they found a small stack of papers. One of them had the names Banker, Butcher, Baker, Candlestick Maker, Muffin Man, Snake Oil Salesman, and Undertaker. Another had a couple of names on it, with someone's theory about which of the above names they were. One of them, the Banker, is the mayor of Denver, and the other works for the Albuquerque News. Another sheet has what the group believes are the musings of Francis Colson. He's trying to determine who all of the aliases belong to, and he puts his theories to paper. The final sheet is written in different handwriting than the others, and it's an obvious warning from the banker. The easy way and the hard way were pointed out, and the reader was left to imagine what those are. The group then headed off to the Second National Bank to see if they could get their hands on Francis Colson's money. They got to the counter, got to the teller to give them access, but she noted that the account had been emptied out by Colson a couple of days prior. She also noted that Colson said something about Montana being beautiful this time of year. The group quickly exited the bank, and as they were trying to decide what to do next, they were approached by a child who had a note for them. The note, signed by a Madame Teresa, was an invitation for a meeting at 7 p.m. That was where we left off last time, so let's pick up our new stuff here. The group has to decide whether or not to accept the meeting. After all, they don't know anyone named Madame Teresa, and you can have them make knowledge checks if they want. Doesn't matter how, how they roll, they don't know this Teresa. If the rolls are good, and I'm thinking nine or better, you can mess with them by pointing out that they know a Madame named Teresa, but not someone by that handle in Denver. If your group is anything like mine, they're going to probably walk around for a bit and try to figure out between them if they know who she is. After that, they're probably going to want to, at the very least, go check out the address provided on the letter to get the lay of the land. Heading to that address, they find it's in the higher class district of the city. They also find out that it's a cafe, a literal coffee and tea finger sandwich offering high class cafe. If they choose to take the time to check it out thoroughly, it is exactly what it appears to be. There's about a half a dozen tables inside the cafe and another four or five on the boardwalk-style sidewalk outside. As they're looking around, there are some high-class-looking folks sitting at a few of the tables, sipping their tea or coffee, and having benign, boring conversations. There are a few waitstaff on hand, but none of them are aware of a Madame Teresa. Oh, and if the group wants names, I'll leave that to you. We've been doing enough names at this point, you know what you need. So since they can't get more info on Madame Teresa from the cafe, they might want to ask around a bit. 
At this point, I'm gonna leave that completely up to you. The only restriction I'd put on this is to make sure they stay in the wealthy district. Otherwise, have them go wherever they'd like to. Apothecary, cigar seller, tailor, butcher, etc. Again, use whatever names you'd like. I would point out, though, that during this period of time, pretty much all of the places they would go would have just men working there. But if you want to shake it up and have women working there, you do you, you go there. The sum of their research is that they get no information about Madame Teresa. By this point, even you have to be wondering why we're doing it this way. For me, it's because I want to have her be a surprise to the group. They've never actually seen her, but as we'll see in a moment, they have heard of her. And I want the group to be back on their heels a bit. Most players and groups get a little anxious when they can't plan for all the possibilities. So putting them into a position where they don't have all the information they want keeps them on their heels a bit. I'm not doing it to lord over them. I'm doing it to force them to think on their feet in the moment. Now, for a bit of inside baseball on this, you know who Madame Teresa is. At least if you listened to the episode two weeks ago. Madame Teresa is the widow. Or at least the widow in my game. For this group, they'll probably remember her from Marshall Ed's description in Triumph as the woman who paid for the group to go rescue that young family many episodes ago. So prep yourself for this however you see fit. She's confident, she owns the space she's in, and she feels as if she always is at least one step ahead of those she's dealing with. And the truth is, she usually is. As it's midday when the group gets the note, they'll have several hours before their meeting. Let them do whatever they feel they need to do before the meeting, but remind them again they're not going to want to go obviously armed. After all, they're meeting in a very public place, and pulling weapons here will most assuredly bring the law down on them quickly. If they want to start looking into leads on the mayor, they can do so. We'll get into that in a minute or two. So let's fast forward to meeting time. By 7 p.m., the sun is really setting low in the west, so the lantern streetlights have been lit, and there's an ambiance to the area around the cafe. For the record, there's a tavern across the street a few doors down and music is coming from inside. There's also a couple of restaurants in the immediate vicinity and the smells of really good food are pouring out. As they approach the cafe, they note that there's only one table outside the cafe with anyone sitting at it and it's a very attractive blonde who locks eyes on the group as soon as they get within range. Anyone paying any sort of attention to what's going on around them will note that there are enough empty seats at her table to accommodate the entire group. That wasn't the case earlier. Before they can take any other action, she'll call out to the group member she sent the note to. If and when that person acknowledges her, she will introduce herself. She'll say something like, I'm Madame Teresa. Please join me. In playing Teresa, think classic Southern Belle with a healthy mix of New York street smart. In other words, the calloused and rough hand inside the velvet glove. She waits for the group to order their coffee or tea. Those are the beverages offered. Maybe a sarsaparilla if you're so inclined, but no booze. She also orders a plate of finger sandwiches and pays for everything, including a healthy tip. Once the beverages and sandwiches arrive, she gets into the conversation. She will start by thanking the group for rescuing the family, if they indeed did that. She will admit that she's not anyone's mother, nor were all of her intentions in hiring them sincere. She'll get into details. She's been associated with a lot of unsavory people over the years, and she admits she's done a few things she's not proud of. However, she spent the last 15 years trying to make up for her past, and she's dedicated herself to working against as many different men and organizations as she can. Her present target is Francis Colson and the Colson Corporation. She can provide them with some deeper information than what the group already had. Francis Colson was, for the longest time, nothing more than a semi-educated thug. While they could handle a stagecoach robbery or an occasional bank robbery, he couldn't keep a gang together or organize anything like his organization is at this point, or was, anyway. 
She does note that Coulson comes from money. His parents were big in some chemical company or something on the East Coast, and Francis took as much money as they let him have and split for the West as soon as he could. She ran into him about two years ago, and by that point he's assembled a group of men that made the Coulson Corporation a group to be feared. She knew from the moment she met him she's going to have to figure out a way to eliminate him. However, no matter how invaluable she made herself to him, Coulson would never let himself be alone with her. And since he has a habit of not sleeping in the same place two nights in a row, she wasn't able to reach him at night. So she made it a point to gather information about him, his enemies, and the associates he trusts the most. The group is already aware of the associates because they've run into him. His enemies are pretty much every law enforcement officer in Kansas, Colorado, and New Mexico. The one thing she hasn't been able to figure out is how he managed to put together a group as sophisticated as he has. She notes that he's got the organizational skills of a toddler, so she wonders how he'd be capable. This is where the group can come in, if they realize this and can take advantage of it. If they mention anything about the board, she'll get kind of a scared, cold shiver. She'll lay out what she knows about the board. She knows that the board is comprised of rich politicians and businessmen from different parts of the U.S., C.S., and disputed territories. Now, the group already knows that they each have a code name that they use when communicating with each other and adds that no one member of the board knows the real names of all the others. In fact, most board members only know the names of one other member, and that's done for the security of the entire board. She happens to know two. The banker is Jonathan O'Toole, who's the mayor of Denver, the Muffin Man is Ezekiel Monroe, who is one of the largest landowners in Arkansas and does a lot of business in Little Rock. Again, if they want to share what they know, Teresa will give her thanks for the information, noting that the board is tough to nail down. She acknowledges, though, that if someone really wanted to clean up the country, the board would go a long way towards doing that thing. But she also admits that getting all of them is going to be darn near impossible. If the group asks if she's aware where Coulson might be, she does have a thought. Well, I know he cleaned out his account the other day, and I know he said something about Montana, but there's no way he went to Montana. He only travels by horse when he has no other choice, and that'd be one hell of a long horse ride. Her thoughts are going to basically be that he took off for Salt Lake City. Why? He's friends with some of the more powerful Mormons there, and if he was running for something, he'd go there. If anyone thinks about or even says something about a board member being in Salt Lake, Teresa notes that the Mormons don't trust outsiders very often, so she wouldn't see one of them choosing to associate with a half a dozen outsiders whose names they don't know. Makes sense. She believes it's probably a financial thing, or maybe that he's done work for them in the past. You know, the kind of work Mormons wouldn't want coming back on them. If they ask about the mayor... She'll note that she's been tracking the mayor for quite some time. In fact, she notes that the mayor is why she came to Denver in the first place. Her hope was that she could get another board member named from him and, of course, kill him in the process. She admits that she kills the men she tracks down, and she does so because men like these either have the money and power to avoid punishment or they're just so wicked and evil that arrest and hanging means nothing to them. She makes it clear that if the group intends to take out board members, they'd better be ready to kill them. However, she also suggests that if the board is interested in taking out Coulson, they could try to cozy up to the mayor and see if he'd be willing to use them to take Coulson out. That would give him an in to potentially get to one, if not all, of the board members at some point in time. And that's pretty much it for the information they can get from Teresa. 
She will admit if they ask that she's sharing the information because she knows what it's like to have the things you care about taken away from you by somebody like Francis Colson. She'll also say that she'll keep finding information she can pass along to them, and she knows that they can send messages back to her by leaving them here at the cafe under the name Alice. At that point, they can converse for as long as they want or as long as you feel like role-playing it out. Should the group decide they want to try and get close to the mayor to get to Colson, Teresa will offer to see what she can do and agrees to send them a message as soon as she has it worked out. She gets their hotel and tells them that that's where she'll send that message. Once that's done, everybody goes their separate ways, and since they were there for about an hour or two, it's now fully dark. Let the group do what they want to at this point and award them two white chips. One for the bank thing before, because I forgot to tell you to do that, and one for this conversation. And at this point, the group needs to decide for certain what they want to do. Do they want to try to get close to the mayor, either to kill him or help getting to Colson? Do they want to head to Albuquerque to go after the butcher? Do they want to head for Little Rock and the Muffin Man? Or do they decide to bypass everybody and just head for Salt Lake City? These are all legitimate options. And between this week and next week, I think we can cover them all. After all, your group will probably go after all of these before it's all said and done. Or at least that's what they're supposed to do, because believe it or not, kids, the board are our big, bad, evil guys for this campaign. Now, that doesn't mean we're close to ending. I mean, how many code names do we have there? And do you think Francis Coulson's the only person they're using as a middleman? Of course not. We've got plenty of campaign left. But with that said, let's continue building. Let's just assume they're going to stay in Denver and get to the mayor. We'll create this both ways, so regardless of which choice they make, we've got something ready. The smart money would be to not just wait around for Teresa to send them information. While it would be smart to get that information before acting, they could and should do some of their own work. Insofar as finding his house, that's not going to be very hard. Everybody who lives in Denver knows where the mayor's house is, so when they get the information, the person who tells them about it basically treats them like they're an idiot. The mayor's home is the only one actually built into the section of the Rocky Mountains in the northern part of town. It has a long cobblestone drive running from the main road to its carriage house, and the house itself is huge, two stories, and they're going to figure at least 20 rooms. There's also enough land in front for the mayor to have grazing animals like sheep and goats. Now, unless they think getting in would be easy, they can also see, because it's painfully obvious, the 15-foot-tall iron fence running the length of the property and running all the way back into the mountain. They could try the mountain, but let's be honest. Chances are good that none of your group members are skilled mountain climbers, so it's a death wish at best. There's a guardhouse at the gates to the entrance, and they notice two very heavily armed men inside it. If they look long enough, they'll also see that there's uh, about a dozen more men doing regular patrols around the perimeter of the estate. And yes, you can put more men there if you really want to. Especially if you're like wanting to really impress on your group that they, they should wait for Teresa's information. I don't know, though. If you know my group, <laughs> listen, for my group, that should be plenty because while they don't shy away from a gunfight typically, if they can find an easier way to get in, they're going to take it every time. Don't increase the number of guards past about 20, but if you want to do more, you do you. Anyway, so with the basic recon work done, maybe your group will want to do some background on the mayor. That's going to take a bit of time, a little bit of money, and a very charismatic character to pull it off. They'll want to hit the exceptionally upscale taverns and gambling houses, and it'll take a day or two. But your most charismatic player, for me, that'd be either Scott or Gabe, but I'd lean more towards Gabe because he's also a really good gambler. They'll get to a table with someone who's just intoxicated enough to open up. And if your player is smart enough to intentionally throw a game or two, 
there's not going to be a need for them to make any rolls. But if they're going full tilt to try to win, they're going to need a persuade check with a target number of eight to pull it off. Once they do, whichever they're going to do, this gentleman is ready to talk. He insists, however, that they get a table so that, quote, our conversation can stay between us, end quote. He buys a good bottle of whiskey, he makes sure they've got two glasses, and as they drink, he tells his tale. His name is Arthur Reed, and he ran the mayor's campaign four years ago. Reed admits that the previous mayor, Jackson Wade, had done an excellent job, but O'Toole came to town about six months before the election and decided he wanted the job. So, Arthur was tasked with spreading rumors about Wade, which he did with enthusiasm since Wade had done him wrong in a business deal. Wade also looked bad in the three debates he had with O'Toole, and the day of the election, it was expected to be very close. Thanks to the money that O'Toole gave Reed to spread around town, it wound up being a landslide. He admits he paid some Wade supporters to stay home and bribed a few pollsters to lose some Wade votes. His reasoning was that if he could get a mayor into the office who would help him, he could regain his good standing in the city. And at first, O'Toole kept his word. He made sure to put Reed front and center when important things were being done in the city, and his reputation was saved. Two years ago, though, things changed. O'Toole changed. He became more secretive. He didn't associate with any of the people who'd helped him win his office, and he stopped paying anybody who'd been getting money from him for the past two years. Reed remembers he noticed the change shortly after he returned from a vacation trip to Albuquerque, where he was supposed to meet his brother for some R&R. Reed has heard rumors that O'Toole has found a new source of money, and that source provides him with round-the-clock security inside his house. He also notes O'Toole's wife disappeared about a year ago, and O'Toole hasn't really seemed too concerned about it. O'Toole is running for re-election in the fall, and he's running unopposed. Rumor has it that anybody who even thinks about filing to run against him has been threatened by a gang of massive thugs. So, Reed has tried to move on with his life and has been trying to live his previous life of leisure. That's his story, and whomever he tells it to probably wonders how much of it is true and how much is sour grapes. They can make a scrutinized check, but don't give them a target number. So long as they roll higher than a two, they're going to believe it's all sincere. They get a one or a two, they're going to believe about half of it, and frankly, that should be enough to give them the right impression. And that impression is that the mayor is a bad, bad dude. Once that information has been acquired, the group needs to talk about it amongst themselves and try to decide what's next. If they're smart, they'll wait for Teresa's information and hope she can get them close to O'Toole. In the meantime, however, it wouldn't be a bad idea to start thinking up ways to get into the mansion to get to O'Toole. And if they decide they don't want to wait, let them deploy their plan. Now, I don't know what your group is going to come up with. My group will probably wait for Teresa's information because they love to have as much information as they can get before they take any actions. But if your group wants to try to storm the proverbial castle, let them try it. For the guards, use the soldier template. That makes sense because all of these guards would be ex-military. Now, the players will want to be sneaky since any gunfire outside will bring another dozen or so guard types into the mix. So we're looking at sneak checks with a target of eight on the outside of the fence and nine once they're inside the fence. If they decide to climb the fence, use a climbing check with a target of six. If, by chance, they come across guards they can't sneak past, they can try to bluff their way past. Bluff, tail-telling, overall, or persuasion will work, but the target should be at least a ten. And if they need to make one of those rolls and fail, they'll be taken back outside the fence and arrested for trespassing. They'll be held overnight, they'll be fined 20 bucks a piece, but should they manage to cross a quarter of a mile of land and get to the house without being seen, they should be able to find a window to get in through. 
Despite all the firepower on the outside of the house, the windows are standing wide open. After all, it's warm in Denver this time of year, and we're at the time before electric fans and air conditioning, so open windows are the only thing to do. No climb checks required to get inside, but once they get in, they'll need to get back to those sneak checks. This time, the target's a 9 regardless. So, before we continue on, we'll need to map the house out a little bit. We sat about 20 rooms spread over two floors, and while I could map it out exactly, and I still might, but I don't have it at the moment, we can talk this out and guess approximately what it looks like. We know that the kitchen and dining room will be on the ground floor. It's also safe to say there's a decent-sized sitting room down here, and probably a parlor for the gentlemen to sit in and sip brandy and smoke cigars. We'll also put a room-sized pantry in here, along with a smaller room that works as a de facto wine-booze storage room. There's probably also a smallish library down here, and probably an office that's set up to look like the mayor's official office. Though if you got into it, it'd be painfully obvious he doesn't use it, it's just for show. The second floor is primarily bedrooms. We'll put three smaller ones up there, three moderate-sized ones, and a master bedroom that's the mayor's. He's also got a decent-sized office up there that he uses on a daily basis, along with his sitting room for cigars. He's also got what would today be known as a panic room, which at this time would basically be a vault that they put on the second floor. Now, obviously, lay the house out however you want. I mean, this is your game. Make it work for you. Besides all of the rooms that they're going to have to check, there's also a decent number of house servants. Let's figure in about 10 spread out all over the house. And there are 10 heavily armed men in here that are personal protection for the mayor. Use the gunslinger template for those dudes. Oh, and it does occur to me that the group might come into this armed heavily. That'll work unless the guards catch them outside and take them out. If that's the case, they'll actually be arrested for attempted assault and they won't get bail. Use Teresa to get them out, and we can say she bribed somebody or something. At that point, she'll be able to get them in with her connections, and we'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so now that the group is inside the house, they're going to need to get to the office upstairs. For each room they go through, and they'll need to go through three rooms to make it to the stairs, they'll need a sneak and check with a target of nine. If they fail, five guards descend on them, and they're the shoot first and ask questions type later. Gunfire will draw down the five guards that are upstairs, and then the mayor will lock himself in his panic room. However, for whatever reason, the gunfire won't draw the guards from outside. So if they can deal with all of them, they can get to the panic room. And we'll get to that in a minute. If they succeed on the ground floor, they can go up the stairs. No check required. Once they're upstairs, it's a single hallway with the door spaced out and one door at the very end of the hall. That, by the way, is the door to the office. Let's make it four sneaking checks with a target of nine. Again, fail any of them, and they wind up with all the bodyguards out on them and the mayor in the panic room. If they succeed, they can get to the office and get inside. Once inside, they've got the mayor. He will call for his guards, but they can get the mayor into a position where they can negotiate with the bodyguards. Overall, persuasion or bluff with a target of six, since they do have a bargaining chip, and the bodyguards will back off. They won't leave the building, but they'll leave the room and leave them with the mayor. For the record, he won't tell them anything, but they can kill him. And if they do it quietly, that means no guns, they'll have a few minutes to search the office. They get confirmation that Zebediah Thomas in Albuquerque is the butcher and that he's a board member as well. They also find out that the board has a connection in Salt Lake City who's gathering information and waiting for the banker's man to collect it. According to the notes they can get their hands on, O'Toole has not decided who's going to go get that yet. Now, if the mayor happens to be in his panic room, they can't get to him, but they can search the office and find the stuff that I just mentioned. If they want to try to get him, technically they need a safe cracker. I wouldn't say lockpicking would 
work normally, but if that's all they've got, then let's let them try. We're going to make the target a 15, and anything under a 5 breaks the lock, meaning nothing short of dynamite's going to get it open, which also means the mayor's going to die in there, since nobody can open it up to get to him, and he can't open it from the inside. So, they just leave him and go. Now, regardless of how all this went down, they have to get out of there. If they manage to get in without alerting anybody, they're probably going to want to not go back down the way they just came in. Climbing checks to the target of eight can get them out the window and down to the ground. A failed check just means they fall and they're going to take five wind. They'll still need to sneak out, so repeat the rolls from earlier. Once they're out, they're out. And now they have some usable information and they'll need to decide what they want to do next. Now, let's go from the angle that they waited for Teresa's information. It'll take four days from the date of their meeting before she gets them a note. She lets them know that the mayor will be at dinner at 54 Provincial Way that night, and that would be the best time to get to it. Scoping out 54 Provincial Way, it's what New Yorkers would call a row house, though since it's in the wealthy part of town, we should probably call it a condo. It's two stories tall with a flat roof. They can pick out a number of different access points to the house, as well as a number of places someone could park themselves to keep an eye on the house. So they'll need a plan. Teresa couldn't get him an invite to the meal, so they'll either need to sneak in or go in guns a-blazin'. They really need to consider the sneaky way to go, since it's going to draw a lot less attention. If they wait until just before the dinner starts, they can make search checks with a target of six. That allows them to pick out a half dozen men on the street who are very interested in that condo. Scrutinize with a target of six will give them six men camped out on various rooftops with scoped rifles, again, keeping an eye on the condo. These guys all get the soldier template, by the way. Sneak checks with a target of six on the street and eight on the roof, and they can take out as many men as they can so long as they make rolls, and it's also provided they do it silently, which again means no guns. The second a shot is fired, a dozen Denver policemen show up, and the group either needs to run like hell for the city limits or allow themselves to be arrested. Arrest is a bad thing, especially if there are dead men around, because they'll be charged with murder and sentenced to hang. Teresa can get them out, but they'll have to leave town immediately. At that point, they'll have to move on to one of their other options. If they've managed to take out all the guards, let's head into the condo. Believe it or not, O'Toole has no bodyguards in there. Everyone in the house is a regular person, so no templates. And unless they allow people to run, they can contain everyone inside until they get what they want from O'Toole. If they want to take him outside, they'll need to overall the crowd. Targets a seven. Failure means that someone screams for cops. Once they get him outside, they need to move quickly because there will be a police patrol coming through about five minutes after they exit the building. They can take him wherever they want, and if they can persuade or overall him, target eight for either, he'll tell them about his man in Salt Lake City, Donovan, and he'll confirm the Albuquerque information. At this point, they're going to have no choice but to kill him because if they leave him alive, he will never stop sending people after them. Of course, once they do that, they'll have about an hour to get out of town before someone finds out, which they can easily do. From there they'll have to decide where they're going next. Okay, so if the group wants to go with the idea of cozying up to O'Toole and trying to work with him, Teresa's message would be a bit different. She'll tell him she's managed to set up a meeting with O'Toole's right-hand man, Bert Norwood, for the next morning. And if they can convince him they're legit, he can probably get O'Toole to work with them. The meeting is at the same cafe they met Teresa at, and Norwood's, he's easy to spot. He's a short, dumpy-looking guy with the world's worst comb-over. However, how he handles himself in a discussion, that belies his appearance. Every word he says is measured and it is backed with confidence. In other words, that voice does not match that body. They'll have to use overall persuasion, bluff, or tail-telling with a target of seven. That's going to be basically to convince them that they want to 
work with O'Toole, not that you know they know that O'Toole's a member of the board. If they succeed, they will convince Norwood that they've got the beef with Coulson and they want O'Toole's permission to go after him. Norwood wouldn't immediately admit to knowing O'Toole, but once they mention Triumph, and they should mention it, he'll agree to discuss the situation with O'Toole, and he tells them to meet him back at the cafe the following morning. At that time, he arrives with a letter from O'Toole, and here's how I wrote it up for me. Gentlemen, we seem to have a common problem. I am more than happy to provide you with my blessings to deal with it. Travel to Salt Lake City and check into the Golden Dragon Inn. Leave a message for Abe at the front desk informing him the banker sent you, and my representative will meet you in your room with more information. Should you accomplish this task for me, we might be able to do some additional business together. OT. He's not offering additional resources, but he is offering access to the information he's got through his man. That's all Norwood has, and he leaves as soon as the group agrees to head off to Salt Lake City. So, with all of this accomplished, give your players a white chip each and a red chip each if they actually stormed the compound and succeeded. And we'll wrap our campaign building here for this week. Next week, we'll figure out what Salt Lake City looks like for our heroes, and if time permits, we'll check out the Albuquerque option, and if we still have time, we may even look at Little Rock. All right, so I talk about the Bad GM Productions YouTube channel every week, and I wanted to announce that we've now got every episode of both Role Playing History and the Campaign Build Along on the site. That means if you want easy access to the archives of both shows, you need to head over to YouTube and check out our page. Also, also, I dropped a YouTube exclusive on there earlier this week where I talked a little bit about Adventures in ADHD, which is an adventure for Dungeons & Dragons produced by our friends at Awfully Queer Heroes. You should check it out because I think this is an excellent piece of work. I liked it so much, I think we're going to do a special episode of the campaign build-along to take a deeper look at it. I mentioned role-playing history a moment ago, and we've got a new episode up now. This week we're deep-diving Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition, and I spend a lot of time talking about the changes to the game from 2nd Edition to 3rd Edition. Role-playing history is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you follow us on social media, and if you don't, you should, because I'm on there almost every day. Anyway, you might have noticed we've got a new logo for Bad GM Productions. We're looking at doing some merchandise with the logo on it. So if you think that's something you might be interested in, hit us up. Let us know what kind of stuff might interest you. After all, I don't want to produce a bunch of crap nobody will buy. <laughs> the music we use on this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for royalty-free, license-free music for your next project. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Follow us at Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Bad GM Productions. Twitter, at Bad GMP. YouTube, Bad GM Productions. Twitch, Bad GM. And our email address is badgmproductions at gmail.com. Next week, we build on looking at the Salt Lake City and Albuquerque options for our players. Until then, I'm the bad GM Wayne Davis, and may all your hits be crits. <laughs>